This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 23. We do need to inspire our workforce. We do need to develop our workforce. We do need to enable our workforce. But if we don't actually transform the work that we're doing within healthcare and outside, if we don't lean into those transformational strategies, then we're DOA. And so we really, as HR professionals, cross out HR professionals, as business professionals, need to make sure that we're helping better inform from a strategic perspective, our organizations on how to build the workforce we need in 15 years versus relying on the same old strategy we've been deploying since the 80s. Every time someone comes forward and says, all we need to do is inspire our workforce a little more, I say the 1980s called, they want their strategies back. How can you be more innovative and stop relying on yesterday's playbook? Why is it important that you define the future of work for your organization and your organization alone? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Greg Till. Greg is the Chief People Officer for Providence Health System. Providence is a comprehensive healthcare organization with more than 120,000 caregivers across 52 hospitals, over 1,000 clinics, and serves local communities in seven western states. As Chief People Officer, Greg oversees all aspects of human resources, including predicting and shaping labor needs, workforce development, utilization and retention, caregiver experience, and organizational culture. As you'll hear in our conversation today, Greg and his team are focused on transforming healthcare by bringing to life the Providence vision for the future of work. Prior to Providence, Greg held several human resources leadership roles at Raytheon Company, where he eventually served as Chief Talent Officer. Greg and I have known each other for some time and have always been impressed with his focus on innovation, challenging assumptions, and his ability to bring pragmatic solutions to life. I know you're going to enjoy our conversation as we discussed why he attributes his early success to being outcome-focused, what he learned about leadership and culture during the pandemic, why he believes flexibility is the new engagement capital, why key demographic trends will only increase the war for talent in the future, and how asking questions like why not can drive innovation and much more. Greg, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. I want to start and talk to you a little bit more about you are a chief people officer now, but earlier in your career, you were mostly spent your time in OD and talent roles. What made you take that leap into being an HR generalist? Yeah, I spent over 20 years in talent, like you said. And during that time, I always told my supervisors, if you ever think about putting me in one of those HR generalist jobs, you can basically accept my two-week notice on the same day because um, I really love talent. But you know, I kept growing in talent and eventually had the top talent job for a Fortune 100 company when I was 33 years old. And a few years after that, I started really thinking about, man, what's next? How do I get to the next level? How do I make an even bigger impact in the communities and for the customers that we're serving? And I also had a little bit of a personal situation. I had a two-year-old daughter at that time, and I was traveling a lot in my talent job. And one time when I went on travel, I was traveling all week. She said, daddy, are you coming back versus when will you be back? 
And that was a little bit of, of a life moment where I said, man, this, this five day a week travel thing when I have little kids, plus this career trajectory thing that I've been thinking about for a while, maybe is going to come together and maybe uh, make me consider different opportunities that I've had in the past. And so luckily I was at a great talent focused company. They agreed to give me a pretty senior role in HR, even though I hadn't had a role outside of talent. Really enjoyed it. The transition was pretty easy because at senior levels in HR, most of what we're doing is talent workforce focused. And the rest is history. I've really loved the connection to the business that being in a big HR job gives you. And I think that a talent background really lends itself to a lot of what makes people successful in these chief people officer or chief CHRO roles. Wow, that, it's incredible. You were really so successful in that chief talent officer role at such a young age. What do you attribute that to? I think I really just was really interested in the business, first and foremost. I went to school, I got an MBA, but I also had a master's in the soft science, organizational behavior. And I always wanted to figure out how do I make a bigger business impact with and for people? And in the OD and the talent role, I was always trying to figure out how the work that we were doing, whether it be an organization design team effectiveness, a change management, how is what we're doing going to really make a massive impact in the business? And so I think that's one of the things that really helped me to rise pretty quickly in the organization, but also helped me with the board, helped me with the CEO. I always came with a business-focused, outcomes-focused perspective first versus asking folks to understand the particular OD or change model that I was working from. It's so important to be really business focused, but I love outcome focused is really critical that you talked about there. And you had that OD and talent background. Has that helped you as a chief people officer? Do you recommend people try to get some time in one of the those COEs? Absolutely. I mean, I think rotating through HR is a great learning ground for future CHROs. You see a lot of CHROs coming from field HR. I think probably the second most prevalent area they're coming from is talent. And that's because I think the skills, the capabilities, and the experiences that you get in talent roles are very related to the things that you need to be great in the chief people officer or the CHRO role. And if you think about the skills like business acumen, courageous presence, problem solving, flexibility, and agility, those are things that you need to be a great chief talent officer and also a chief HR officer. Same thing about the capabilities. You know, Great OD folks need to be system thinkers who are expert in things like org design, change management, workforce strategy. Building high-performing team, same thing that a CHRO really needs to be expert in at the high levels. And then when you think about the types of experiences that we get as an OD practitioner, board experience, organization and culture experience, executive level team dynamic experience, all those things also lend themselves to, I think, what makes a great chief people officer. In my first CHRO type role, I'm lower in the organization or HR business partner role, I really frankly did a lot of the stuff that entry-level CHROs do or entry-level business partners do right out of school. I said, I'm not going to come in just with the executive perspective and only think about strategy. I'm going to spend a year rolling up my sleeves, doing ER investigations, really learning about compensation decisions that we're making, working through kind of low-level talent analysis, working with the unions. And that also was really helpful to me so that I didn't only bring the strategic aspect of the workforce and talent scope that I learned in OD but that I also got a little bit more grounded than I was in the fundamentals of HR. And I think that helped too. Yeah, it sounds like you had a really great self-awareness to know that instead of staying at the higher level, maybe where you could delegate some of those tasks and some of those activities around doing ER investigations or 
lower level analysis, you said, wait a minute, I need to get that experience to be better at this craft. You've spent 20 years in talent, but you hadn't spent 20 years as a generalist. And so you really dove deep, which I think- It also helped me build credibility with the team that I was leading. The team that I was leading when I was coming in, I'm sure they were probably skeptical. They're like, oh, here's this corporate talent guy that we've known as our chief talent officer, now going to come and try to lead us in HR. He doesn't know what it's like on the ground to really lead some of these HR business partner roles or deal with labor relations or the unions. And so part of it was me. Part of it for me was a learning experience for me. Part of it was also a commitment to my team to try to get it, walk a little bit of a couple of days in their shoes and to be a better leader myself and to build credibility along the way. What advice would you have then for a generalist who's going into a COE role? Kind of if you flip what you did there, what would you think they should be focused on? I think it's really critical that everybody is on their own development journey. And so I would say, if you want to move into a COE, make yourself an expert in that COE. One of the best training grounds for me was starting a consulting where I was typically an OD talent guy, but my partner might call me up when I was at a club in Chicago on a Saturday night and saying, Hey, Greg, on Monday morning, you're a supply chain expert. And I'd leave the club immediately and then spend all day Sunday trying to learn as much as I could about supply chain dynamics, current components about supply chain theory and operations. I'd say, number one, go develop yourself in the COE that you want to learn more about. Join some professional organizations, do listen to podcasts like this, do some research and find out what really makes it tick. Talk to the experts and do some informational reviews with folks that are in your own organization to think about that. And then just take the plunge, you know, especially in the early career standpoint and mid-level career, it's pretty easy to jump from HR function to HR function. And if you're a good leader and willing to learn and listen to others and be part of the team um, to become an expert pretty quickly. And so I think that's really foundational and needed to support you in bigger jobs. It's really hard to move up within one lane and do a really great job at an executive level. Absolutely. Because you miss that step and you don't really know all that goes on below that, right? You don't have the foundation. But I love how you talked about everyone's on their own development journey to do the research, take the plunge. And then I would add, make it known that you want to make that move. Start to network and let people know you're available, you're interested, you're willing to take projects, side projects to get that first opportunity. 100%. I mean, you don't get what you don't ask for. And people take risks on people they see as being willing to take risks themselves. I know it's not popular to talk about today, but one of the things I think that made me successful early on before I had a family was I aggressively seeked out opportunities to stretch myself, took the hard assignments, and probably was working 70 or 80 80 hours a week in the first decade of my career to try to learn as much as I can, to try to be viewed as a high-performing leader, and to frankly take some risks and make sure that I was moving as fast as I could to grow as fast as I can. Obviously, I'm in a different life position now, but I still believe that it's incumbent on me as the leader to be in charge of my own growth and development. Certainly as an HR leader, I'm trying to open up opportunities for the folks that work in my organization, but I'm also pretty quick to remind folks that no one's going to develop you for you as well as you can for yourself. And it doesn't mean attending three week-long classes or going to a conference. It can be as simple as talking to experts in the field, learning from them, walking in their shoes, taking a developmental assignment, asking and being willing to take on some of the hard things that others might shy away from. I 100% agree with that approach. And I think we want work-life balance. We, I guess it's important today or work-life harmony. But when you're early in your career, honestly, there's really nothing else you can do to help your career more than put the time in. Find those projects no one wants to do, stay late, work hard, and that will make a difference. It's just true. I, I did the same thing earlier in my career, and I think that was 
it helped me get ahead faster. Obviously, your results were pretty incredible for how quickly you rose in the corporate ladder as well. Yeah, someone gave me some advice. They said, Greg, sometimes it's time to climb and sometimes it's time to camp. And it doesn't mean like when you're camping, you're not doing a good job, but it might mean you're not aggressively working 80 hours and going after every single hard project that you can. But to your point, I think we need to be very clear on what we're valuing. We need to be very clear on what we want as our goals for our personal life and our professional life. And then look at those things together and realize that everything that we do in life has trade-offs. Um, you can't typically climb in the organization as fast as you might want to if, you're, if to your point, you're not taking on the risky assignments. You're not willing to work maybe a few additional hours. You're not willing to move for a rotational assignment. Those are all sacrifices that you might need to make in your personal life to achieve the most accelerated career path possible. That might not be right for you and it's okay, but recognize that every decision that you make on the personal side or on the professional side has an impact on the other side. And as long as it's in the right balance for you and aligned to your personal values and your personal mission, it's great. So well said. Greg, I want to shift a little bit because, and go back to the pandemic. The pandemic was very challenging for everyone, but especially for healthcare organizations and their workforces that really just really went above and beyond during that really difficult time. Looking back, what did that experience teach you about leadership, organizational culture, humanity overall? Wow, that's a big question. I'll start by saying that I'm incredibly grateful, looking back, that Providence was able to care for the first known COVID patient in the US and many more after that. That put us on the trajectory of needing to live into our reputation of being an innovative community partner in a way that I think we really never had before. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve in healthcare in this time. I'm grateful for the caregivers that leaned in to really take care of the communities more than they ever have. And frankly, I'm grateful to to the question more specifically uh, that it helped us to realize some things about ourselves that maybe we didn't know in the past. The first one was something that we really already did know, which is our caregivers are incredibly committed to their jobs and the communities in which we serve. You know, the first year of the pandemic, most of our clinicians worked more hours than they ever had to take care of our communities. And at least at Providence, we had the lowest attrition we had ever measured. Um, our caregivers really stuck with our communities and wanted to care for the folks in the communities that were really struggling through the first year of COVID, which was really an uncertain time. The second one is it really helped us to remember that decision-making should be local, that we can fail fast and work as a team to get things done, make decision and decisions and get things done pretty quickly. I think in a big organization like Providence, it's easy to think of yourself as a big ship and take so long to get to a decision or to make an adjustment in order because the risk is high if you make the wrong decision. But in some cases, big companies maybe take that too far and they get too slow. And the pandemic demanded that we make quick decisions to care for our communities, either because there was new knowledge, new legislation, or a new round of patients that we need to serve. Um, Third, it really helped us to think about how we can act small at the local level, but think big at the system level. We're a system of separate employers. We have 52 different hospitals that we're operating, a thousand clinics. And so we do a lot of really local work. But what we found at the very early stages of the pandemic was, you know, one one of our ministries or one of our hospitals might be suffering with staffing overload, whereas one of our ministries or hospitals might have had a staffing surplus because we stopped elective surgeries. And it really helped us to get to think big and develop systems that help us to do better workforce utilization and management so that we could even out the workload kind of across our ministries, but then also where 
it reminded us to keep the decisions super local so that we could move as fast as possible. And then lastly, I just say, I think it just reminded us of the power of team. In the early days of the pandemic, as you mentioned, especially because we were one of the first, we didn't know we didn't know where the patients were coming from. We didn't know how to deal with the pandemic. We didn't know if we were going to have enough masks to serve our patients or enough ventilators to serve our patients. And we quickly got together and created systems and structures that focused on teamwork, sharing information, collaborating across the enterprise and really getting everyone marching in the same direction so that we could do as well as we could given the environment of uncertainty and scarcity. And frankly, I think really came through for the communities that we were in. I'm incredibly proud of our caregivers and our leaders for coming together and doing just an exceptional job, especially in the first two years of the pandemic where there was a lot of scarcity and uncertainty. Wow, Greg. I mean, we are really grateful for Providence and really all of the healthcare organizations across the United States, I think, during that time period. But what is incredible when you talk through that is how much you learned, how quickly and agile the organization shifted. And you're right, it was such a really difficult time. And it was really falling back on organizations to make quick decisions and really try to support the communities. And so it's just tremendous what you did. And I appreciate you sharing those insights. I think they're pretty incredible. Hopefully that is getting to be in the rearview mirror. Hopefully we're starting to be in much better times. But we're also seeing a lot of big demographic shifts in our workforce in the United States. It's becoming more and more obvious. And you're also, of course, leading HR for a large healthcare organization, which is probably seeing really in the front row of a lot of these shifts. What changes are you seeing in terms of demographic shifts and how is it impacting the workplace and specifically healthcare? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking the question. And I think the demographic shifts are one of the biggest, big, red flashing lights that every workforce strategist needs to be paying attention to. Broadly, I'm sure that you know already that the workforce is growing in the US at the slowest rate that it ever has. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. Our birth rate's not matching the replacement rate, meaning we're not producing enough children in order to replace the workforce that we currently have. People are retiring at higher rates than they ever have, just given the age demographics. And we're not offsetting the supply and demand gap in our workforce with immigration like we used to. Um, in the next decade, the number of people that are working age between 15 and 65 is going to actually decline by 3% for the first time since the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been measuring it. That's a pretty massive problem for the United States across all industries. You know, Elon Musk tweeted a couple of months ago that the biggest catastrophe that we're facing is the inability to resupply our workforce and our population demographics. Unfortunately, in healthcare, the dynamics are way worse mm -hmm. than they are for the general US population for a couple of reasons. First, our workforce is older than most other industries. The average age of a nurse right now is 52 years old, and the average nurse retires before they hit 60. We're on a big edge of a big cliff from a nursing perspective. We also haven't been able to replenish the workforce fast enough because we haven't, because of the workforce dynamics generally, but also because a lot of the nurse educators have already retired. You put on top of that, the burnout rate in healthcare is higher than any other industry. 80% of our industry are, is reporting self-reporting burnout. 50% are considering leaving. 20% have already left through the pandemic. And it's a massive, massive crisis. If you believe the statistics that BLS puts out, it basically says in the next five or 10 years, we're going to need just from a nursing perspective, 6 million, but we're only going to have 4 million. And so literally we're going to have a vacancy rate of 33% just for nurses. Now, when you combine that with things like food service workers and environmental services workers, now that we're competing with people like the Marriott for at the price point that, that we're paying, and it's, it's frankly a massive crisis. And it just basically boils down to, we won't be able to provide the care that we currently are in our communities 
it's one of the reasons why every time I'm on LinkedIn or somewhere else and people say, don't worry, this workforce crisis is going to blow over as soon as COVID ends, or all we really need to do is create a focus on well-being or inspiring our workforce. I want to pull the rest of my hair out because we do need to inspire our workforce. We do need to develop our workforce. We do need to enable our workforce. But if we don't actually transform the work that we're doing within healthcare and outside, if we don't lean into those transformational strategies, then we're DOA in almost every industry, but healthcare worse than most. If I add up all of the benefit of higher retention, better hiring, more accelerated development, um, and more enablement of our workforce, that might solve 20% of the problem. And so we really, as HR professionals, cross out HR professionals, as business professionals, need to make sure that we're helping better inform from a strategic perspective, our organizations on how to build the workforce we need in 15 years versus relying on the same old strategies we've been deploying since the 80s. Every time someone comes forward and says, all we need to do is inspire our workforce a little more, I say the 1980s called, they want their strategies back. We need to be making sure that we're helping the organizations to reshape ourselves in addition to doing the really important work to retain, recruit, and develop the team as well. I mean, it's a daunting challenge when you lay it out that way. And I think one of the biggest challenges I think we have is that we are very much, especially for publicly traded companies, we're looking quarter to quarter, year to year. There's not always a very long-term view. There's a few companies out there that have a long-term view. And I think Providence is obviously one. And probably more healthcare organizations are thinking about this long-term. But a lot of organizations are like, yeah, we're not thinking about that. Oh, hey, well, the recession's coming. So maybe, you know, we're going to have more people on the market again. But what you're talking about are fundamental demographic shifts that really would not only impact, it would impact every industry, impact the GDP, impact availability of workers across the board, but especially healthcare where, you know, that is a critical function. We all need healthcare, right? Absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think over the course of the next couple of years, as the economy slows down a little bit, we'll, we'll see a little bit of a softening in tech. Um, I have some internal leaders at Providence that are saying, hey, whenever recession hits, our workforce crisis is going to get a little bit easier on us, right? I'm like, well, let me actually show you the healthcare data, not the general industry data, not the tech data, but the healthcare data. And then our collective eyes get really wide. I do think that it's a workforce problem holistically to your point, but in healthcare, it's much worse. Good news though, is that it's motivating us to think more innovatively. We're in a change ready environment right now. A lot of things we've been talking about for the last 20 years with respect to automation, with respect to thinking about skills development versus more degree programs, with respect to how we're going to reshape the models of care to frankly figure out how to care for people with higher quality with less FTEs or less people are things that we're getting a lot of momentum around now that we never have in the past. Because I think the pandemic has exacerbated the workforce crisis in healthcare, which is opening people's eyes to the cliff that we're on but also, frankly, the innovation that we need. That's one of the great things about living in this country and being in the industries that we're in are when we see a big challenge ahead of us, the team rallies to figure out how to solve those challenges. And so that's, frankly, one of the things that's kept me in healthcare through a lot of the challenges is the amount of need that exists and the level of interest there is in really innovative solutions. Yeah, and I know you have talked a little bit about some of the innovative solutions. One of the things I have heard you say is, what if we thought about Healthcare workers as a gig economy, almost gig workers, where they could pick their schedules, pick the pay. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't want to share anything that's province secrets, but how are you thinking about transforming the workforce in that way? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like to say is that flexibility is the new engagement capital. I think that when most of our administrative workforce began working from home and getting more flexibility through the pandemic, eyes opened to the flexibility that they could have that they might not have realized they could have. And at the same time, even prior to the pandemic, the gig economy was growing pretty exponentially, meaning folks having side gigs or side hustle, more folks working for themselves, more folks having flexibility. Through the pandemic, more and more people want that, frankly. And frankly, the needs of a healthcare organization are variable. You know, on some days when it's like a high flu season, the pandemic's raging, you have more surgery scheduled, you need more folks on the ground to help through that versus another time of the year or another time of the month where maybe there's less surgery scheduled. Maybe the maybe it's in the summertime and the flu isn't as prevalent, you need less workers. And so I have been perpetuating this really crazy idea that likely won't come to fruition anytime soon, which is... What if we thought of all of our healthcare workers as gig workers, even if they're employed, meaning we give them 100% flexibility on their schedules? Today, the most common schedule for a nurse is 12 hours, three days, or 12 hours, four days if they want to work some overtime. Most folks at the end of their career can't be on their feet for 12 hours a day for three days in a row, plus an extra day of overtime. How do we change the model on that? Or, you know, a working mom or dad might just not want to work 12 hours a day. They might want to be able to pick up their kid or drop them off to school. The second thing is where they're working from. You know, a lot of us administrators got to start having a lot more flexibility through COVID working from the depth, from the place of our choice, whether it was from um, a location that was different from home, a Starbucks, our clinical workforce, and a lot of our core workers didn't get that opportunity, but they're asking for it. And so Providence is putting things into place like virtual nursing units now that might be able to operate from Georgia, even though we don't have any nurses from Georgia which also frankly can even out the supply and demand of nurses. In some of the communities that we're in, we have more nurses than we can employ. Um, In all of Providence's uh, regions, we have many less nurses than we need in our ministries. And so we're figuring out how we can use virtual work clinically to offset some of that supply and demand balance. And then you mentioned pay. I mean, this is the really crazy, crazy part, which is through the pandemic, especially last year through the workforce crisis, we started inviting in more agency nurses or more contract nurses to come into our facilities because our vacancy rates were super high. In some cases, those, those agency nurses were getting paid two times and at its height, three times as much as we would be paying a full-time employed nurse. And so you got these full-time employed nurses looking at this agency nurse that doesn't have as much experience in the hospital, doesn't know that technology, is from a different part of the country, making three times as much. And the light bulb went off saying, well, what if we opened up these shifts to anybody in our communities who has a, an RN who wanted to work them and basically utilized our gig economy within our local communities versus having these travel nurses come from all over the US? And then the second light bulb went off and said, well, what if we started our own internal agency where we viewed our internal caregivers as gig workers so that they could choose their own shift? Like, I want to work an eight-hour shift. And maybe on the more high-demand, less desirable shifts, like an you know, overnight in an ICU, We told them what the rate of pay was going to be, which probably was higher than they'd make as an FTE, maybe equal to or a little bit higher than they'd make on overtime and let them select the shifts they want to be on. And we found out that we'd actually get a higher quality of care, caregivers who already knew the systems and structures that were more aligned to our mission. And frankly, that also provided a little bit of cost advantage to us as well. And so while we won't get to every job as a gig economy job anytime soon, we are starting with that mentality, asking ourselves, why not? Why can't someone work the hours they want to from the place they want to at the price they want to and trying to be innovative with that as a starting place versus the starting place that we had for the last 170 years, at least at this organization, which is this is how nurses work on this unit this many hours a day 
at this price. Yeah, I think what's incredible about that, Greg, and so someone who's not from healthcare, the takeaway learning here is asking yourself these big questions, your organizations that really go against the status quo, that are really kind of the sacred cows of the organization. Well, I've got to deliver healthcare face-to-face. It's got to be 12 hours a day, three to four days a week, where you flipped on its head and said, what if it's the economy? What if we empowered them to choose? Would they be more engaged? Would we have more of a workforce? And I think that's what a lot of organizations aren't doing. Frankly, I think a lot of organizations have come out of the pandemic. We've hit remote work, right? And it's sort of the hybrid, and we sort of have stopped. Now, some organizations have gone farther, but not very many have gone as far as you're going to say, wait a minute, can we just radically shift how we do and deliver what we do? Or does it still have to be the same old way? And so I love that you're challenging that. And it sounds like you're making some really good progress and frankly, an area that probably needs it because you're really empowering people to make those choices. I was going to say, along with automation, giving people more choice is like the holy grail. As a consultant, I used to tell my clients, not exactly in these words, you can have it fast, cheap, or good. Pick two. You can't have all three fast, cheap, and good. Automation, more flexibility, giving people more choice actually is going to help us to provide a higher quality care at a lower cost with a more engaged workforce and ideally also happier consumers, which is what in healthcare we call the quadruple aim. And so we actually can have all three if we allow ourselves to think a little bit differently than we have in the past. And are you looking at how to automate this through technology that is you're building yourself in Providence and having to look at, or are there companies that are tackling this with you? Because obviously the healthcare economy is, is a big one and there's lots of companies that would be interested in tools like this. Absolutely. In some cases, we're partnering with others. We have a lot of really innovative partnerships. Luckily, we're in Seattle where Microsoft and Amazon are headquartered. We have partnerships with both of those organizations. But we're also working with consultants in some ways to design some tools ourselves that frankly, at some point, HR might be able to be a revenue center by offering our technology and our services to other health systems or to other industries that might be interested in doing this, but they can't afford to or don't have the knowledge base to do it themselves. A couple of really cool things that we're doing that that I'm excited about that I think are going to, that are already having a big impact at Providence, but could elsewhere are pretty simple in theory, but they're adding a lot of value. One is predictive hiring. In healthcare, our average time to hire is like 75 days. And you can't wait 75 days after a nurse tells you they're going to leave to get a new nurse to fill that position. It's incredibly costly if you want to hire agency nurses, or to your point, you're delaying care from someone that really needs it. And so we basically use a big data approach to crunch all of our available data on, you know, everything from patient flow to work schedules, to predict the needs about three to six months in advance that we need in our hospitals with about 90% accuracy. And we're pre-opening positions if we need to hire for them so that we're limiting the amount of time to vacancy by utilizing data and automation. Second one that I'm super excited about is predictive scheduling. You know, a nurse manager spends about three hours every pay cycle trying to figure out the optimal schedule, like in an ER, for instance. Typically, those schedules have a lot of leakage, meaning we're not optimizing the use of our talent based on the patient flow and patient demand, maybe on the price point that we're paying for folks. Doesn't take into consideration a lot of what the caregivers really want to be working. And so again, utilizing some technology and automation We're basically now able to, again, predict kind of the supply and demand of talent, predict the supply and demand of our patient flow, input all of what our nurses, for instance, or techs want to be working. And the technology that we are now deploying, it spits out three different versions of a schedule that a nurse leader can choose from in less than 60 seconds. Um, It takes three hours of time off a nurse manager's plate. It optimizes it so we're not overpaying for talent. It gets the talent where we need them most at the point of care. 
And it also takes into consideration what the caregivers actually want to work more than it ever has. Again, fast, cheap, and good. Those are two of the areas that we're automating now that I think are super cool. And a couple of other ones I don't want to talk about, but that I'm also talking about with respect to how we do better, better workforce utilization and take advantage of different models of care in order to get people to the point of care in a more effective, efficient way that I'm super excited about. Last question for you, Greg. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? My phrase would be that workforce is not a recipient of business strategy. Workforce is a business strategy. You know, on the old GE model, when you know you had the business strategy in one ch- in one column, the next column was what's the workforce strategy that supports that business strategy, and then the last column was like what are all the tactics and actions you're going to put against that. I think it's a tiny bit flawed. For me, I see workforce strategy as a business strategy. Obviously, it needs to support your community needs and the overall vision and strategy for the organization. But if HR professionals don't see what they're doing as a strategy to change operational results for the business and get you closer to the vision that you're trying to achieve, you're not doing it right. All right, Greg, thank you so much for being on A Future of HR. You're doing some incredible things at Providence. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Greg for sharing his insights on shifting demographics, flexibility as the new social capital, and how to innovate at scale. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you're enjoying Future of HR, be sure to subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. And please help us spread the word to other next-gen HR leaders like yourself. We'll be back next week with Gordon Kerfee, Managing Partner at Kerfee Leadership Solutions. Gordy is one of the brightest, if not the best mind when it comes to team effectiveness. And if you don't believe me, then you might want to check out one of his 19 books he's written on leadership and teams. In our conversation, Gordy and I will discuss what makes a team a team versus a group of high-performing individuals, what really matters when building a high-performance team, what HR and people leaders get wrong about team effectiveness, and much more. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.